Good morning. Good morning, Calvary. How are we doing today? How was everybody's ski week? Was it good? I just wanted to say ski week because in Texas we had like hurricane week. We didn't have ski week. So it's good to see everybody. I love the social side of this. Everybody's having fun. You're enjoying this beautiful Sunday. While you guys are still chatting and having a good time, um, those who are able and willing, would you please stand in honor of God's word? I'm going to read you the whole story. Go ahead and stand up if you're able and willing. Um, I want you guys to look on the screen. I don't want you to read it. I just want you to let me read it to you, but follow along with your eyes, and then we'll unpack this amazing story together, okay? Mark 14, 1 through 11. Here we go. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, or they said the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be also told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Let's pray. God, thank you for a time and a place that we can come together and we can praise you and worship you. We can be in community together under one roof as a family, as a church home, and to learn the scriptures and to hear the songs and be together as we receive your word. Give us soft hearts. Give us open minds. Speak through me the words you want spoken today. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Okay. So last week, Dale talked to us about the Olivet Discourse, one of the toughest things to teach. I'm so glad it was him. And now he is passing that baton to me. I'm taking it and I'm running with it. We're going from chapter 13 today to 14 right now. Chapter 14. So as you heard last week's message, you might have visualized some dark clouds forming over Israel, over Jerusalem at that time as he's talking about how are we going to know when the world's going to end? What are the clues? What's going to happen? Well, now visualize those clouds, those dark clouds just forming over Jesus at this time. Because the mood and the tone changes drastically from 13 to 14. 14 is the longest chapter in the book of Mark. And it's beginning to prepare us for this transition in life of Jesus to where he now begins to enter into his passion, also known as his suffering. We're going to get into that today. Now, one of the great things about working at Calvary is we get to... We get assigned a message, we get to dive into it and dig and pray and read, and then we'll meet with Dale about a week or two out. And so I got to meet with Dale on this when we walked through the message, and he points out some things that we want, want to make sure that we share with you guys and talk about. And he laid out this beautiful picture of today's message, so I want to share it with you. We're going to put a slide up on the screen. It's several circles. I want you to look at the circles. Of course, Jesus would be the center circle, Okay. But go to the outer circle, that's the Sanhedrin. Those are the leading uh, priests and the elders, the scribes. They should be closest to Jesus, but in this story, they're way out. 
And then you'd think if I hadn't shown this to you first, the disciples would be right there around Jesus. But in this story, they're not. The woman, who I'm going to introduce to you in a few minutes, gets it right. So visualize what I'm showing to you right now. Jesus in the center, and then these growing out from it. We'll circle back on this at the end of the message, okay? Let's dig in. Verse, 14, verse uh, I'm sorry, 14.1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. Okay, quick refresher, Passover. The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They can't get out. Moses, the Exodus, everything starts happening. The plagues, the locusts, the frogs, all the horrible things in order to get Pharaoh to let them go and set the people free. Do you remember the last one? The last one that finally did it, finally got Pharaoh to break and let him go, it was the angel of death was sent. To every, every family, the firstborn son would die, including the livestock. So what had to happen? You had to, you had to slay a lamb, you take the blood of the lamb, and you wipe it on your outside door posts. So when the angel of death showed up that night, it would go to the house. If it saw the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, it would pass over. That's where it comes from. So they're celebrating Passover. Passover is designed to observe and remember what God did. How he freed them from slavery, he got them out of there, the exodus, all those great things. They would celebrate it. It was a week-long celebration every year. Happy time, reflection time, remember, observe, all those things. During those seven days, you also have the festival of unleavened bread. Refresher on unleavened bread. God told Moses to tell the people you've got to be ready. You're not going to know when I'm going to get you out of there. You have to be ready. So when you make bread, you may not use yeast because you don't have time to let it rise. That is why unleavened bread. So when you put these together in this seven-day festival, it's kind of like a homecoming. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. You'll understand why this is important. I'm setting, setting the tone for you here, okay? So it's Passover. All these people are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate, to observe, to remember. Verse 1b, the chief priests and the teachers of the law are scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. Now, during the Passover, the Sanhedrin who I showed you should be getting ready to observe, remember, to celebrate, to appreciate, to be thankful, to show gratitude. But instead, they're scheming how they can arrest and crucify Jesus. Their, their, their mindset couldn't be farther from what it should be. They've had enough of Jesus. Remember, you've, you've been listening to us for months on this. Jesus has done the miracles. Blind to see, deaf to hear, lame to walk. He's raised the dead. He's cast out demons. He's done all these things. The people love him. They swarm to him. But he was ruining it for the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin were the ruling authority. The robes, the headgear, the best houses, the best seats, the best food, the best everything. Jesus was turning that all upside down. They were, they were done with him. So verse 1, you understand, they want to arrest and kill Jesus. One of them says, verse 2, but not during the festival. They might riot. All these people that are coming in, they're all coming back to Jerusalem. They love Jesus. They've seen him out in the country doing his thing. They're all arriving. So as much as the Sanhedrin want to arrest and kill Jesus, they know they can't do it during this seven-day festival. So one of them at the last second says, hey, hey, wait, guys, don't do it now. So they're stuck, okay? Now, all of a sudden, this is the best part of, of Mark, 
all of a sudden the whole story changes. Like visualize like a car coming to a screeching halt. The whole story just changes right now. We've talked to you guys before about this. It's called the Markin sandwich. He starts a story, then he gives you the meat of the story, what it's really about, and then he closes it by referring back to the opening, okay? I said it the best I could, but N.T. Wright says it better. Watch this. The opening section of the chapter is like a dramatic painting. A large canvas with three sections. The middle section is the main story about the woman with the pot of ointment. It dominates. But we understand its dark meaning, not least when we look left and we look right to the chief priest plotting and then Judas going off and striking a bargain with them. So now, you've heard the dark opening. You know what's going on. It's Passover time. They want to arrest and kill him. What do we do? We can't do it now. Now you're going to hear the meaning of the story. Verse 3. While he was in Bethany reclining at a table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Okay, there's a ton here, all right? So right before COVID hit, we were in Israel on a tour right before they closed the borders. We got back just in time. It was like February 2020, something like that. And I got to see all this and experience all this. And so when you think of Jerusalem, the capital, it's this city. It's right here, okay? Last Sunday, Dale talked about the Mount of Olives, which is up higher over here, looking down on Jerusalem. If you crest that hill and go down to the other side, that's Bethany. So Jesus is over here, probably because of all the crowds that were arriving in Jerusalem. And he needed to stay away or he would just get mobbed by the people. So he's over here in Bethany. He's having what is effectively his last peaceful meal with his disciples. Okay? So that's where he is. That's what he's doing. It's in the home of Simon the leper. Now Mark writes everything so specifically and he crafts his words carefully. Why is he telling us it's at the home of Simon the leper? Well, Simon the leper is someone that he healed. Okay? He no longer has leprosy. So that's the overarching owner of the home in Bethany, Simon the leper. If he still had leprosy, he'd be outside the city. We talked about that. They were in encampments out there. He took care of all that, okay? Now, Mark says the woman. On the circles, you saw the woman. In the book of John, her name is Mary. And so I'll reflect back and forth. I'll try to honor Mark because we're in Mark. But when I talk about the woman, it's Mary, who is the sister of Martha, who is the sister of Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the, okay, are <laughs> you getting it? It's coming together, okay? Mary, sister of Martha, sister of Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. There you go. So that's where he is. That's what he's doing. Now, why do we want to know that it's an alabaster jar? So I've read this for years, and I'm like, the, I'm like what is alabaster? I don't even know what it is. All I could think of is like the rock song in the 80s, the police wrapped around your finger. There's alabaster in there, and that's where I learned from this thing. So I did some research for you guys. Alabaster is a creamy white color. It's off-white. If you go to Sherwin-Williams website, which I did, they have an actual alabaster color that's used in a lot of production homes and those kinds of things. So we know this jar is alabaster, so it's an off-white. We know that it's between 12 and 16 ounces. Theologians argue this stuff. Most will say 12. Some say 16. So think can of Coke right here, can of Coke. Or think the bigger can of Coke at 16 ounces, okay? That's how big this is. It's important that you understand this. Alabaster jar, some value, because those were kind of rare back then. But then understand it's full of pure nard. Pure nard. 
So I went to a perfume store for you guys because I wanted you to smell nard. And when I walked in and asked for nard, they laughed. Um, but one of them looked it up. It's, it's from the root spike nard, if you Google it. And the best thing I can tell you is it smells like gladiolas. Guys, I know I'm not helping you at all. But women, if you know what a gladiola smells like, that's what it is. Super rare perfume. And it's a ton of it. 12 ounces, can of Coke in an alabaster jar. Why is Mark telling us this? Why is it so detailed? So I also Googled perfumes for you guys because it's just kind of fun. The most expensive perfume you can buy right now is by a company called DKNY, and it's called Golden Delicious, and it costs over $1 million. It's like an ounce and a half, okay? Keep thinking this way. Why did Mark tell us this? Mark says that it costs just over 300 denarii. Just over 300 denarii. You look at me and say, what does that mean? Okay, I'm going to tell you what it means. So every day someone would work in Jesus' time, they earned one denarii. They worked six days a week. You know, God made the whole thing in six days, rested on the seventh. They worked six days. If they worked a year, they would make 300 denarii. So I don't know what your salaries are. I don't want to know. Don't yell them out. But think whatever your yearly salary is, is what this thing cost. It was one year's salary. Alabaster jar, pure nard, one year salary. Okay? So I'm emphasizing the enormous cost of this substance. Because a lot of theologians will debate, this was a family heirloom. This was passed down through generations. A community like Bethany came together and pooled their money to buy this thing. Its value is enormous. When you look at the verse, then it says Mary basically barges in. Let's talk about that. Jesus and the 12 are in a room having his last peaceful dinner. Mary and Martha, they weren't supposed to be in there. She barges into the room, okay? The disciples may have gotten frustrated there. We'll talk about that in a minute. Breaks the jar. She didn't unscrew it. She didn't uncork it. She breaks the jar. Why is he telling us this? Dale's real big on telling us, get in the verses, stare at them, be still, listen, and pray. What does it tell you? To me, this says, she's all in. There's no going back. It's the point of no return. She barges in the room. She breaks the jar open. She's not going to be able to close it again. That's it. Dumps it over his head. Book of John says she dumps it on his feet, wipes it with her hair. Theologians debate and say, if it was 12 to 16 ounces like a can of Coke, if you dump it on his head, it's going all over his body. Basically, it was a bath. It was head to toe. She does this in that moment. Now, why, how did the disciples receive this? Let's read this. Verse 4. Some of those present, the disciples, were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Look at the word harshly, bolded, underlined. The English language does not do a good job of translating this word. So I'm going to explain this word to you. I talked a couple of months ago about a mission trip I did to Spain. We were at the southern tip of Spain, giving Bibles to Muslims that would come up through Africa into Europe for the summer. That night, one of the local guides that we were working with said, Rob, you need to understand our culture. You need to understand our environment, who we are in Spain. We're taking you to a bullfight tonight. Okay, that's a whole nother sermon. I'm not even going to get into that. There's a reason we don't have them in America. Wasn't expecting it. But the point I want to tell you about is this. That bull, 
I don't know how, he's probably hungry, what they do to the bull. It is raging. The bull is behind this pen. The matador's out in the middle. He's got his red cape. And the bull is like thrashing the walls and trashing the people that are holding him. There's the horns. He's bucking the ground. And his nostrils are flaring. That is the description from the scripture. The disciples were so mad, their nostrils were flaring like a raging bull. So you have to scratch your head and say, okay, why are they so upset? What has happened? And when I met with Dale and we talked about this, I don't know if the disciples began to take Jesus for granted, if they spent too much time with him or identified or what, but Mary barges in, breaks the, the jar, dumps it on his head, and the disciples are raging mad. They're raging mad. Indignant, wasted, anger, outrage. Now, let's talk about this. You know the cost of the perfume. It's one year's salary. Let's look at what Judas is about to do. In just a few moments, Judas is going to betray our Lord and Savior for 30 pieces of silver. Let's compare these two. 30 pieces of silver back in that day versus 300 denarii for the year's wage of the nard. So there were four kinds of silver back then. Yes, I researched all four for you. Here's the deal. If you compare the two, what Judas got for betraying our Lord and Savior was worth 20% of the perfume on the low end and 30% on the high end. So think about what Judas got for betraying the Lord and Savior versus what Mary did because she loved him and had a heart for him. Keep those in mind. Verse 6, leave her alone. Jesus had to come in and rescue her. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. Interesting. One of the mission trips that we would do a lot is we would actually come to L.A., down to Los Angeles, to something called the Dream Center. And the Dream Center is led by a guy named Matthew Barnett. He bought an old defunct hospital. It was a massive hospital downtown L.A. And he turned it into missions. So one floor is like recovering addicts. Another whole floor is guys just released from prison. And then us as missionaries would get a floor and we'd stay there. And every day we'd go out and we'd work under the bridges. We'd go to Skid Row. We went to Compton. We went, did all these ministry opportunities and these things. But before we were going to send all of our teenagers there on a mission trip, we went on a pre-trip to figure out what's this place all about. So there's a bunch of pastors. We're meeting with Matthew. And one of the guys raised his hand and he said, Matthew, I see that you go through staff a lot. A lot of your staff turns over pretty quick. Why? And he said, well, it's interesting. When young kids come out of seminary and they want to come and change the world, they want to come to me and solve the homeless and the poor problem. He said, but it's not a problem to solve. It's an opportunity to manage. And he goes right to this quote. He, he brings out this verse and he says, the poor you will always have. And Matthew says, once you understand, you always have them. And it's an opportunity. It's a, it's a moment that you can minister and love. It's not a problem to solve. It's an opportunity to manage. That's what gives him the long-term goal. That's what Jesus is saying right here. Now, as I was meeting with Dale and talking about this, I'm like, wow. Serve the poor. Anoint Jesus with oil. Pretty awesome options. These aren't like, like really, really bad things. One's easier than the other. Not at all. And Dale gave me a really quote I want to read to you guys. He said this, he goes, these are really good things. They're just in the wrong order. We need to start with Jesus, start with worship, and let everything else flow out from there. Think back to the circles picture. When you have Jesus Christ in the center of your life, and you honor him, you pray to him, you glorify him, you worship him, all the decisions then flow out through there. 
Mary led with her heart. The disciples in this moment led with their head. All that she did was all that she could do. Mary didn't just come to celebrate Jesus and adore him, but she came to anoint his body for burial. When Mary understood the significance of that moment, she's like, okay, everything he told us is coming true. He's going to die within, he's going to the cross within two days. Mary felt it, knew it, loved with her heart. In that moment, I don't know why the disciples were raging angry because they were thinking with their head, not Christ first. Mary comes with her most priceless possession and gives it all to anoint him before he dies. This is one of the most sacrificial, extravagant, heart-rendering gifts of all time. Henry Nouwen says it like this, What makes us human is not our mind, but our heart. It's not our ability to think, but it's our ability to love. Mary led with her heart. The disciples in that moment led with their head. Verse 8, She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And here we are today, among thousands of churches that are going through this verse today because we're all in Lent and we're leading up to Easter. Jesus literally said it in that moment. He's like, hey, I tell you, wherever the gospels preach throughout the world, what she has done will be told. Here we are, year after year after year. We're still telling the story of Mary's sacrifice. Tim Keller says it like this, very short, very sweet. You don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Mary in that moment knew the power, saw forward. She listened to everything he'd said, and she knew what was coming. To understand that she literally poured that on him because she's ready, readying him for burial. She knows he's going to the cross. She knows what's going to happen. She's preparing him. Fun fact, on Resurrection Sunday... Mary was the first one to the tomb. Did you ever wonder why she was going to finish the burial preparation with more ointment, with more oil? She went to go finish the burial process. That's why. Okay, now, screeching halt on the car again. The good part of the story, the meat of the sandwich is done. Now we got to go back and finish the front end. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is brutal. This is dark. This is one of Jesus' best friends. This is the moment when Judas says, that's it. I'm out. I'm out. I don't know. Again, if you sit in this, you're like, you spent the most time with this guy. You saw the miracles. You saw the raising of the dead. You saw everything that happened, and yet, you're going to go do this. And it's like, I don't know if he had a weak moment and thought, you know what? If he's going to die anyway, I'm going to make some money. I don't know. But Judas's downfall was his love for money. Sheer money was his downfall. Listen to this. This is, this is powerful. If Judas could not understand the woman's action, then he would never understand the cross either. If he was so raging man and didn't understand the power of that moment with Mary and what she was doing to Jesus and for Jesus, he'd never get the cross either. I mean, to fast forward, you guys know what happens. He gets the 30 pieces of silver, sees Jesus get arrested, feels so guilty, goes back to the temple to the Sanhedrin that paid him. He says, I can't have this. I feel bad. Well, that's blood money. We can't take it. He throws it in the temple, goes out and hangs himself. That's, what, that's Judas fast forward right there. 
this was the moment that he, that he left. This was it. So when you take verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11, you understand the plot in which they put together in order to arrest and crucify Jesus. Verses 3 to 9 are the beautiful story of the anointing of the king. The lesson that we all receive about how to understand that Mary saw the bigger picture. Mary loved through her heart. She anointed Jesus because that is how you treated kings. She prepared him for burial from head to toe, as was promised, and we still read and talk about her every day. Let's go back to the circles. I want to kind of get ready to close out with this. Talking about Jesus being the center of your life, the Lord of your life. We all have a throne in our lives, and we all want Jesus to sit on that throne, but sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes it's work, sometimes it's money, sometimes it's kids, sometimes it's education, sometimes it's job. But when we, when we hold each other accountable and we attend church and we have small group, when we have friends that say, hey, 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 I think you might have this wrong. You might have gotten off track. Get Jesus back in the center. This is how it laid out today. The Sanhedrin, the ruling authority, should have been the closest. They were the farthest out. The disciples, his closest buddies, they got it wrong. The woman, Mary, in that moment, is the only one that got it right. When you think about how to apply this to our everyday lives, a few things come to mind. The first is the reminder that the beginning and end of this story is all about the plot, crucify, condemn. That's it. You look at Mark put in the center. When Mark tells these stories, it's about the center. It shouts to the reader to remind us to live in the moment, to remember what Christ did for us, and to put him first and then everything else will flow out from there. Then reflect, how can we share this love? How can we share this message with others? In this moment, Mary saw the bigger picture. She understood what was happening, even when Jesus' closest friends couldn't see beyond that one small moment. You know, I've talked a lot today about Jesus being the center of your life, being on the throne of your life. And some of you may have a question, I don't know if he's there in my life, I don't know where he is in my life, I know, he's a, I know there's a God, I know this. If you want to settle that and you want to make sure that Jesus is the Lord of your life, pray this prayer with me. I'm going, to, I'm going to lead you in a prayer of salvation. I just need you to repeat what I say privately between you and God. This is just called a salvation prayer. Let's settle it now. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for loving me. I admit that sometimes I sin and make bad choices. Thank you for always forgiving me every time I ask. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I choose to invite you into my heart and into my life, and I make you my Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, Christ entered your heart and entered your life. He will never leave you or forsake you, which means he'll never forget about you. Now, the cool part of that moment is if you've done that, you now spend the rest of your life chasing after him and learning more about him. And that's discipleship. And that's what we want to help you guys with. So if you just did that, let us know. We want to walk you through that process, celebrate with you, and help you on your journey. Let me give you this benediction as we leave today. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. And may he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. We pray this for you in Jesus' name.
Amen. Have a great week. And don't forget to RSVP to NVP.